Hello and welcome to School of Batman. We ask scientists and researchers to use their expertise to help Batman in his quest against crime. I'm your host, Chris Blumson, amateur scientist and professional Batman enthusiast. In today's episode, we'll be discussing man bats off the radar. Man-Bat is on the loose in Gotham City again after Dr. Langstrom, buoyant with confidence after creating a brand new serum, wreaks havoc. The Doctor has a very specific goal in mind this time, which is to capture the Batman himself. Bruce hits the streets with his usual armory of tech, but something is wrong. This time, he can't pick up on the characteristic sonar blitz that have enabled such a speedy capture in the past. Is his equipment faulty? What could be going on? We're pleased to be joined by Dr. David Jacobs. David has a PhD in zoology from the University of Hawaii and is currently an associate professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Cape Town. And he holds the South African Research Chair Initiative Chair of Animal Evolution and Systematics. So hi, David, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm very well, Chris. So, I mean, that's quite an interesting setup straight away. Uh, we, we tend to dig around into people's academic journey, how they got to where they are today. Uh, and yours, just from a geographical perspective, looks quite interesting. Um, so I'm guessing from the accent that you're, you're a native of South Africa. How did you get from where you are now to doing a PhD in zoology from the University of Hawaii? Well, uh, during, during the, the days of apartheid, the American government, in conjunction with private corporations and universities, uh, decided that one of the best contributions they could make was to help educate uh, people in South Africa that through apartheid have been denied uh, access to education. And so they came up with this scholarship program where uh, black South Africans could go and study at the universities in the United States, uh, fully funded. So I was initially offered uh, a place at the University of Cornell in the United States. Um, but then uh, a week later, I received uh, acceptance from the University of Hawaii as well. And having a keen interest in evolutionary biology and dolphins, I decided to take Hawaii. When I got to Hawaii, the, the person in charge of the research program on dolphins wasn't taking on any students. And so I had to look around for another animal on which to do my PhD. And uh, because I had a keen interest in mammals, I decided to take on uh, research on the Hawaiian Hawari bat, which is the only native terrestrial mammal in Hawaii. The only native terrestrial mammal. Can you just unpack what that means? What, what's a terrestrial mammal? Uh, anything that doesn't live in the sea, basically, or in fresh water. Right. So islands are always so peculiar from an evolutionary perspective. You get some interesting animals there. Is there any particular reason why there aren't any other mammals in Hawaii? Because of the isolation uh, of Hawaii. It's right in the middle of the Pacific. The closest land mass is North America, which is 2,500 kilometers away, right? Um, and so unless you can fly, you're just not going to get to Hawaii if you're a terrestrial mammal. And of course, bats can fly. And so the North American wary bat somehow made it over to the Hawaiian uh, uh, islands and uh, became a new species. 
that's a phenomenal distance for an animal to travel. Was part of your work trying to understand how that distance might have been covered, or is that something entirely different? Not really. I was I was more interested in how the Hawaiian uh, wari bat had changed from its ancestor. And the nice thing about that setup is uh, we knew the ancestor, and we knew the end product of uh, thousands of years of evolution, and that would and that helped us piece together the process that led to the Hawaiian hoary bat. We didn't actually look at how they uh, managed to reach all that uh, distance, but we we assumed that it was probably the trade winds because it blows from North America towards Hawaii. But uh, what we've got to be careful about when we talk about evolution, we've got to understand that although the ancestor was probably a hoary bat, it might have not looked exactly like today's hoary bat because obviously it had has also been evolving uh, since the Hawaiian islands were colonized. But it's, it's close enough for us to be able to make that comparison to understand how the Hawaiian hoary bat became different from the North American hoary bat. I have so many questions about this already. Uh, okay, so how do you pick apart what an animal's ancestor might be? How can you look at the bat in Hawaii and say, we think this and this animal in the mainland are related? Today we would use genetics, right? And we would compare those two species with all other bat species. And the genetics show that uh, they are in fact sibling species, right? In other words, uh, they diverge from the same ancestor. How did you do that back in a time when those tools weren't so like, readily available? Well, what helped was the taxonomists had gotten there before me and they actually classified the Hawaiian hoary bat as a subspecies of the North American hoary bat. And when you look at the two, they look very similar externally, uh, but the Hawaiian hoary bat was much smaller than the North American hoary bat. So that indicated to us that they probably were uh, related. And of course, the genetics confirmed that later. So your studies were trying to work out why the Hawaiian bat had become a lot smaller? That's correct. There's a phenomenon known as island dwarfism, where you have a decrease in the size of the ancestor once it colonizes uh, islands. Mainly to, uh, the islands are usually depauperate in resources compared to the mainland. And also the habitat uh, is very different as well. And so you have the, the ancestor of the Hawaiian hoary bat after its arrival from the mainland, now having to do, deal with very different habitats and very different species assemblages as well. And all of that impacts on its evolution, causing differences between it and the, the mainland population. And is that something you'd say is fairly present across mammals, this kind of island dwarfism? Right, so you, you have uh, elephants, for example, which colonized islands also uh, became smaller than uh, the mainland from which they came. So I'd like to ask a question now, but I don't want to go too deep into it because I think it could be a podcast all on its own. But it's a really interesting one, I think, for listeners to consider. So we're talking about how these environmental factors cause an impact on the evolution. Um, could you talk a little bit about that mechanism um, and perhaps kind of more interestingly, how your understanding of that mechanism of how this has happened has changed since the days of doing your PhD to where you are now. 
Uh, which mechanism precisely are you talking about? The, I mean, I mean, the, like the mechanism of how these external factors impact upon an animal's evolution. So, like, what's the connection? How, how are these things driving one another? In 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 very general terms, uh, because you'll you'll appreciate that uh, you'd probably need a different explanation for each species. But a very general explanation is that certain environments would favor certain characteristics, while other environments will fa would favor different characteristics. So if you have two populations from the same lineage, and you would take the one population and place it in a different environment, only those characteristics that are suitable for the new environment will be carried on to successive generations, right? Meanwhile, the, the, the other population in a different environment, which favors different characteristics, only those characteristics would also be passed on to future generations. And that's why you have two populations of the same lineage now slowly start becoming different to one another. Right. So in this particular example, we're looking at the bats coming over from the mainland. And you have the islands where there aren't as many resources available. So the larger bats that might have required more energy to get around would have struggled in a, in a kind of natural selection kind of way. Is that the general idea? So let me try and put that, summarize that in a nutshell. So the North American hoary bat was a large bat that flew relatively fast in open habitats. It wouldn't fly in dense vegetation, for example. And, and because it was large, it, prob it had a greater probability of successfully reaching the Hawaiian Islands to begin with. But on colonizing the Hawaiian Islands, it, faced, it was faced with a variety of different habitats, including forested habitats, where a lot of insects uh, uh, were on the island. And this exerted selection pressure on those individuals who were able to survive to be able to forage in dense vegetation. And that required a reduction in size Right? So what would happen in the Hawaiian Islands, only the smaller hoary bats would be able to forage in both dense vegetation as well as in open areas. And so you had a reduction in size. With the reduction in size, you also had a change in the echolocation frequency. Right, So you have the Hawaiian hoary bat being a smaller bat using a higher echolocation frequency than its North American ancestor, which was larger, could fly faster, needed to detect things at a greater distance, and therefore used a lower echolocation frequency. Just incredible. I mean, every time I hear stories of these different types of evolution, the beauty of it is just remarkable. I mean, thanks for sharing that. It's probably time we get back to Batman, though. So in this specific situation, you might not be aware of who Manbat is. Manbat is a character who, through the use of serums, takes on characteristics of bats into his man form. Uh, so we have a predator in this instance, which is Batman, and then we have Manbat. So they're in an arms race of trying to capture each other. Batman couldn't pick up his kind of echolocation bits with the equipment he's been using. What could be going on here? Is this referencing some of the ideas we were talking about earlier, where echolocation, um, is it is it frequencies changes depending on what type of thing you're hunting? Yes, uh, so if you look at the diversity amongst bats, um, uh, you'll see that the echolocation is as diverse as the body forms, and in fact probably even more diverse. Uh, 
Individual lineages of bats have optimized their echolocation calls over evolutionary history to allow them to forage in their particular environments and habitats. So, as I said earlier, bats that fly in very dense uh, vegetation where obstacles to both detect and avoid are present over relatively short distances uh, would actually use um, echolocation calls of higher frequency uh, that allows them to detect very tiny objects over short distances only. So it's trying to optimize detection rather than the distance at which it detects the objects. A bat flying in the open, on the other hand, has to search a greater volume of space to find its insect prey. So what those bats did over their evolutionary history, they used lower frequency echolocation calls that was able to travel greater distance in the atmosphere before petering out, allowing them to detect objects at greater distances. There's another interesting phenomenon here because the favorite prey items of bats are moths. When bats first evolved echolocation calls to hunt insects at night, moths were sitting ducks. Over evolutionary history, those moths who through mutations evolved rudimentary ears were able to use those ears to listen to bat echolocation and therefore take avoidant action uh, to avoid being eaten by bats. So they actually used the bat's offensive weapon to evolve a defense against bats through hearing. So that's a very specific example to the Batman story we're looking at here. And that was actually going to be one of my next questions. Have any prey evolved any methods to avoid detection by these different types of echolocation? Uh, you've given a fantastic example of these moths involving rudimentary ears. Um, so, so what happened? Nature doesn't stand still. So what, what happened to these bats once these ears started to become part of the landscape of this predator-prey relationship? Did their calls change? Did their frequencies change? Um, did their, did their behaviours change? Because I guess ears can only hear a certain frequency as well, right? So when this research into moth hearing uh, f first started, uh, mainly North American moths were being investigated. And, found that, and, and what they found was that moths heard best between frequencies of 20 and 60 kilohertz. But you have some bats that actually echolocate below 20 kilohertz and above 60 kilohertz. And one of the hypotheses that was tested at the time was that these frequencies outside of the hearing range of moths had evolved to allow those bats to circumvent the hearing of moths and therefore allow them to catch capture these eared moths. So I guess a question from that would be, you, you were talking about how the frequency range affects their ability to pick up things in enclosed spaces. So did the bat's physiology change in other ways to compensate for them having to use these new types of frequency? Yes, because um, remember the, the scenario I gave you with uh, which echolocation systems are better uh, are better for closed in, uh, for cluttered environments and open environments. So a bat echolocating at very low frequencies will have a problem with resolution. It's not going to be able to resolve small targets, although their detection range would be quite uh, large. For bats 
echolocating above 60 kilohertz, the problem there is that they're sacrificing detection range. So those bats at the higher frequency would have to become more maneuverable flyers because they're only detecting things over relatively short distances. And so they have to be able to be maneuver to have sufficient time to make the capture. Bats echolocating below 20 kilohertz uh, are detecting things at a, a relatively greater range and can therefore fly faster, which allows them to cover more space in a shorter period of time. So those bats you, you would tend to be your bigger bats with long narrow wings, whereas the bats echolocating above uh, 60 kilohertz would have uh, shorter, broader wings that allow greater maneuverability and slower flight speeds. But before you get this idea that bats are really, really weird mammals, just bear in mind that the echolocation and the flight that bats use to operate so effectively in their environment all they've done is simply elaborate organs, physiology, and metabolism that already exists in the basic mammal. Okay, so you can draw a direct line from a basic mammal up to a bat. There's nothing particularly unique. Um, so this divergence between the two different frequencies, has this gone as far as to create new species yet? Or is that naturally where that's going to go? Because I imagine that these will start looking like very different bats. So one of the things we're trying to do with our research is to explain the enormous diversity in bats, right? There are many lineages in bats. So the only mammalian group that has more lineages than the bat group are the rodents. So there are, are more than 1,200 uh, lineages of bats. Uh, that means that a quarter of all mammal species on the planet are bats. Within their diversity, in, in other words, the di taxonomic diversity, the number of lineages, you also have ecological diversity. And bats are by far the most ecologically diverse group of mammals on the planet. Could you define what that means, ecologically diverse? It means that they occupy far greater, a far great, greater range of habitats than any other mammals. What they do within those habitats is also far more diverse than, for example, what rodents do. For example, you have bat predators. You have predators preying on insects, on small mammals, on small reptiles. You have bats that prey on, uh, on other bats. Uh, you have bats that are nectivorous. Uh, you have bats that eat fruit. And then the only habitats that bats do not occupy on the planet are the Arctic. Uh, uh, the Arctic and the Antarctica. We, we try to understand that diversity. We are already faced with a group of animals that has more than 1,200 species in that. We don't actually see the lineage divers diversification happening because it happens over longer than a human lifespan. And we kind of have, we, 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 we sort of historians. We see what's, uh, what is there today and we try to work back and find out what the history was that led us to present day. So how much has technology been influencing that over the last 5, 10 to 15 years? Uh, tremendously, maybe not over the past 5 to 10 years, but uh, let's just use an example of echolocation. Our senses are limited, so we cannot hear ultrasound. And as far as we were concerned, bats weren't making a sound. 
And then there were experiments done by Spallanzani uh, where uh, he discovered that bats can actually detect things with their ears. And of course, he was ridiculed for that because ultrasound just didn't figure on our, our radar. This was in the 1800s already. And then echolocation was actually only discovered in 1944. And if you look at the history of echolocation research from 1944 to about 1970, almost nothing was done. And, and this is because the only way that um, echolocation was discovered was through the invention of high-speed uh, tape recorders, right, which weighed about 30 kilograms. So you'll appreciate that uh, you're only going to be able to study bats if you bring them into the lab because you can't carry something that heavy out in the field, although some really enthusiastic uh, bat biologists did so. But then when bat detectors became more portable, you can see the graph shoots up in, in terms of the number of studies that were done on bat echolocation. Over the last five to ten years, you can now attach a bat detector to your smartphone. That's how portable it's become, and do some really good science with that. But what has also advanced it was um, with all of those bat detectors, as mobile as they were, we could focus on the time and frequency structure of bat echolocation calls. But it told us almost nothing about the energy that bats put in the echolocation calls and different parts of the echolocation calls. But with the development of multiple microphone arrays, that allowed us to pinpoint the position of a bat as it flew and then use that position to determine the distance between the bat and our microphone, we could tell exactly how much energy the bat put into that echolocation call as it emitted it. And that now allows us to study the intensity of echolocation calls and therefore things such as detection ranges, that is how far a bat is able to detect an object uh, using its particular kind of echolocation call. What have been some of the most surprising things you've discovered while doing your research or in the field itself? Yeah, there's this interesting twist. So uh, uh, remember I told you about bats using different frequencies? Well, it turns out that that hypothesis is not correct. Why We can't tease apart whether a bat is using the high-frequency echolocation calls or the low-frequency echolocation calls as a result of the habitat that it finds itself in. and it, it, Because if it is the habitat, then the fact that moths can hear or not hear it is immaterial. And, and so we were stuck that we couldn't really tease apart those two processes and decide which process was impacting on, uh, on the bat's echolocation the most. But then... Uh, a colleague of mine at Bristol University uh, and his collaborators discovered what is now known as stealth echolocation, where this particular species of bat, the, the barbastel bat, that they were working on, would lower the intensity of its call, sacrificing detection range, but because it lowers the intensity of the call, moths couldn't hear it, and therefore the bats could actually ambush the moths. Related to this evolutionary arms race between bats and moths, uh, and when researchers became convinced that, this, uh, that uh, bat echolocation was being influenced by moth hearing and moth hearing was being influenced by bat echolocation, what we noticed was that some moths had very sensitive hearing 
at frequencies at which bats don't echolocate. So we're talking at below 12 kilohertz. And we couldn't understand this. And I remember saying to James Fullard, uh, my colleague uh, uh, from Canada on which we worked, uh, here in South Africa, I said, James, maybe that is uh, the, that sensitive hearing is a, res is a response to bird predation. And it turned out that Anna-Marie Serlaker, a researcher from, from Europe, in uh, one of her papers some time ago, I think it was in the 1980s, had a, a single sentence in one of her papers that perhaps this low-frequency hearing is a response to bird predation. So she had thought of this idea before I did. When I mentioned this to, to James Fullard, he said that, well, the bird would have to be the size of an elephant because obviously birds don't sing while they're hunting, but they do make rustling noise as they move through the vegetation. And he said for a moth to be able to pick up the rustling noises, the bird would have to be the size of an elephant. And at the time I told him, well, we know we do have ostriches. And then he came over here and uh, we worked on a, a diurnal moth and we discovered this uh, high sensitivity at very low frequencies and then we discovered that there was a bird preying on these moths and it was doing so by sitting on a perch uh, on a bush flying over to another bush and trying to catch the moths feeding on that bush but as it landed it made this rustling noise and we noticed that all these moths suddenly took flight and when the bird tried to catch these moths it would always not succeed right but then what the bird would do was dive down into the bush and would come up with one of these moths. So the rustling noises and this increased hearing sensitivity at these lower frequencies acted as an early warning system uh, for these moths against bird predation. So that, that was very surprising, especially since people didn't even know that this bird also fed on moths. Then in terms of the, the other surprise is that we... There's been a lot of uh, uh, um, suggestion that perhaps echolocation, because it's such a signal and is ubiquitous in the environment, that bats might also be using it as a communication signal and not just an orientation signal. We have now discovered that uh, bats can actually say, uh, learn something about another bat based purely on its echolocation calls. What would they learn from another bat? Uh, uh, gender species oh. and uh, we think um, that they might be using it in mate recognition but we're not convinced of that yet uh, we don't think that the evidence for that is very good and so we're continuing research in that direction that's it for today and thanks to david for joining us thank you very much for having me chris it's been fun you can find out more about david's research on his website the link is in the description. If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, please email us at info at figshare.com and you can find us on Twitter at School of Batman.